You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, you're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast by the Progressive Policy Institute. My name is Will Marshall, and our subject today is a new report that PPI has recently released called The New Politics of Evasion. And I'm delighted to be joined by the authors of that report, Bill Galston and Elaine Kmart, who are both now roosting at the uh, Brookings Institution. Uh, They are two of America's sharpest minds on politics and policy, but they're also practitioners, having both served in high office and in White Houses, Democratic White Houses in the past. Full disclosure, Bill and Elaine are longtime friends and uh, my foxhole companions in the never-ending struggle to (laughs) to help the Democrats define a pragmatically liberal governing philosophy. So uh, thanks for joining us today, uh, Bill and Elaine, and we want to hear about this report. Let me start at, at the beginning where you start in it and uh, ask you all this. Uh, you know, you you wrote a famous report many years ago, decades ago, I should say, uh, that helped uh, illuminate the Democratic Party's challenges in the 1990s and frankly helped them correct course and get back on a winning track. What motivated you to write this sequel? I think it's pretty simple, Will. Um, two words, Donald Trump. <laughs> You know, it was just clear after January 6th and after four years of him that he was unlike any other American president we'd ever had, and certainly unlike any other Republican president we'd ever had. And so all of a sudden, the the cost of losing to Donald Trump was exponentially higher than the cost of losing to a George Bush or or, uh, even a Ronald Reagan, for that Mm -hmm. matter certainly a Bob Dole, um, that this Republican Party was dangerous, not just for our various policy differences. This Republican Party was dangerous to American democracy. And so that that was the impetus for doing this again. Right. Stakes are much higher this time around. And I would just I would just add, if the Democratic Party and the Democratic president were on a roll, We wouldn't, I think, have felt the same imperative to write this report, but it's the combination of the threat of losing and the stakes of losing that I think came together at the end of last year and gave us both at virtually the same time, independently, (laughs) the sense that we really had to press the button and do this analysis again after 33 years. as we're learning uh, in Europe, uh, no battles are ever won permanently. The battle for a free Europe has not been won permanently, although we deluded ourselves into thinking that it might have been. Uh, and the battle for a battle-worthy Democratic Party that can go into combat with a high, high probability of success is, it turns out, never-ending. So here we are. That's, that's for sure. Uh, okay. Well, look, as you did 
30 years ago, you, uh, this time around, you've identified some myths, the myths that prevent Democrats from coming to grips with their vulnerabilities, their weaknesses. And uh, they're different because times have changed radically. But Lane, why don't you give us, if you don't mind, a quick summary of the of the of the principal myths you think need refuting today? Well, um, first, there's there's basically three myths, right? One is the myth that all people of color think alike and act alike. That and and you know we had a we had a little teaser, and even I sort of thought, okay, maybe this is happening we, during the Obama years where, you know, a sort of new generation came in. The new generation had a lot more people uh, uh, who were non-white than previous generations. And so there was a little sense that, gee, maybe the demographics were changing in a way that was going to change permanently American politics. That little glimmer of hope there got dashed in 2016 when we saw not just the victory of a Republican, but the victory of a very far-right nativist Republican. So that was the first myth that we thought, okay, that just doesn't work. And if you, if our listeners read but one table in the report, read the first table, which just shows how many more non-college white voters there are in nine key states than Hispanics and African-Americans combined. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we go back to something that we, that harkened back to the first politics of evasion, which is arithmetic matters, right? A a simple arithmetic matters. Um, You know, the second myth was we called economic determinism, the myth of economic determinism. And, And in that one, it was basically the tendency of Democrats to think that that economics will always trump culture and that, you know, we will always be um, that the cultural things are really a distraction. What people really ultimately care about is economics. I think that's not proved to be, be true. And Donald Trump did one very clever thing uh, in 2016. He took Social Security and took Medicare off the table. And when he took them off the table, one of the favorite ways that Democrats have used for decades to beat Republicans, which is they're going to take your Social Security and cut your Medicare, was gone. And then the third one, which we can talk about a lot, was the myth of a cultural emerging cultural majority. And once again, different different issues. But once again, as in the 19 as in 33 years ago, um, the Democrats actually believed their rhetoric and thought that their rhetoric was wise, widely popular. And in fact, it's widely unpopular. And proof in the pudding is that the president himself in the State of the Union the other day, other night said, the answer is not to defund the police. It is to refund the police. So, but this, you know, this was probably the a number one example of being out of step with the culture, but there are many others as well. Well, let me let me pick up on that third uh, myth, the myth of yeah. progressive ascendancy, and ask uh, maybe Bill uh, to tackle this one. So, according to your figures, only about seven to nine percent of voters overall describe themselves as very liberal or identify with the policies of a Bernie Sanders or AOC or the squad. Uh, and yet, you know, if if you picked up the, uh, a newspaper or listened to the press over the last seven or eight years, you would have heard a lot about the, the progressive dominance of the party and, and, and the fact that the progressives are the base of the party. 
who really is the democratic base? You know, you know if we have evidence now that uh, that the progressives have not been able to really mobilize a lot of left-leaning voters, what's the real democratic base? How do we understand that now? That's a good question, Will. And let me rephrase the question just slightly to get to what I think is the heart of the matter, uh, namely, what is a democratic majority in current circumstances? And a democratic majority is made up of people who sort of think the way Joe Biden thinks, plus some, some people to his left who are focused on climate change, Green New Deal, radically redoing the U.S. economy, and a host of quote-unquote advanced positions on cultural issues. And people like AOC, the squad, Cory Bush especially on policing issues are the loud voices of that part of the party. Uh, and there are also, as Democrats have found out to their sorrow, some people to the right of Joe Biden who also count and who also vote and whose votes probably made the difference between victory and defeat in the key swing states. And they have a few people left to speak for them in the halls of Congress, uh, but there are a lot more of them out there in the, out there in the country. Now, one reason why voices to the left of Biden uh, have been louder is that the, the structure of the House of Representatives has worked to magnify their voices. As study after study has shown, there are fewer and fewer swing House districts than ever before. According to one estimate, about nine, after the current reapportionment is over, only about 10% of the 430 House seats will be contestable. In the other 390 seats, you know, the primaries are for all practical purposes, the election. Elaine is one of the great experts on, on primaries. And so I'm gonna turn this one over to her for some, you know, for some elucidation, but this is not a formula for concord between the parties, if both parties are being driven by the safest seats imaginable. Well, you know, I don't think people have realized how much of the real action in American politics is in primaries. It is no longer in November. We can practically forget November, except that those swing, swing um, districts may in fact determine who's in control of the House. Um, the action now is in primaries, and in primaries, we've been tracking at Brookings for, this is the fourth uh, year, year we've been tracking who runs in primaries and how the extremes do. And th this is the same, by the way, for each party. And what you see when you study primaries is that there is very frequently a battle between the far right and the sort of more traditional conservatives and the far left and the more traditional Democrats. And those are what's determined American politics, interestingly enough, not November, okay? Right. Hardly November at all. And I think that is something that we are just, as a country, we're just figuring out. That's where the action is. 
Right. Well, we had some interesting primaries in Texas we could talk about if, if we've right. got time uh, recently. But let me let me uh, stay on this point uh, about the base, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there uh, among the media and people in general about who really is the Democratic base. Uh, and uh, so it goes back to your, fir- your first myth about not all uh, people of color thinking uh, and voting in the same way. Uh, I think a lot of folks would say that the base is it's the young progressive left plus uh, minority voters, plus Hispanics, plus black voters. But we know that we've learned, I think, that there are really uh, sharp differences, you know, among uh, both black, between black and Hispanic voters, but also generationally between older black and Hispanic voters and younger voters, and also by class terms, that is, between college-educated or working class and college-educated voters. So just just expand on this point about people of color and their, you know, their different political outlook uh, and and why, you know, it, it was probably a mistake to think that they would sort of be mar- marching hand-in-hand with the kind of people who adore Bernie Sanders' policies. Let me just make a handful of points here. Number one, if you stack up most African-American voters along the continuum of the Democratic Party, uh, they are more moderate in their outlook than a lot of young, well-educated white progressives who were the real base for Bernie Sanders. And, uh, you know, as we as we saw in the Democratic primaries in 2020, uh, African-Americans have worked too hard for what they've gained step by painful step to be swept away by utopian promises. Right. They don't believe it. You know, and especially when these promises are being articulated allegedly on their behalf by people who are not members of their community. You know, so they have a different attitude toward bold, transformative change. They, they do. A, they do. Young college-educated white they, person. In they the understand. City. They understand that. Yeah, you know, they might. You know, they might achieve the new Jerusalem, but they have a lot to lose too, right? You and, know, one 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 African American leader said to me during the primaries. I said, "What what is it?" Well, I said, "Why don't why don't um, African Americans like Bernie more?" And she said. Elaine, you have to understand that whenever there's a promise of great, big, bold change, we end up with the short end of the stick. Okay, they just don't trust it. They just don't trust any of it. And uh, that has been one of the more interesting things that we've discovered in the last decade. Right, that that is really interesting observation, you know, because it goes beyond just sort of being more modern outlook, or maybe that's why they're more modern. Now. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's yeah. the, I think that's the point. They have a very practical evaluation, you know, of, you know, of yeah. how, pol- how politics works. They can't, they, they believe that they cannot afford flights of fancy. But let me, let me go on to the second piece of your question. We've been tracking attitudinal differences between African-American voters and Hispanic voters, they are wide and they are expanding. And they go to a lot of pieces of the Biden agenda. They go to approval of Biden's presidency, right? African-Americans in this sense are clearly the base because they strongly approve 
of by the way Biden has handled his job and uh, and you know choosing an African American woman as vice president and then choosing an African American woman as his first Supreme Court nominee. Uh, those are meaningful steps for the African-American community. By contrast, Hispanics are, if anything, slightly less likely to approve of Biden's job performance than the Americans in general. The last one I checked, Hispanic approval of Biden was in the high 30s. Uh, and uh, they are much, they are focused like a laser beam on economic issues and many of them are culturally quite conservative, as de as Democrats are now finding out in South, South Texas. Uh, and so they they have become swing voters. Uh, and the gap between educated Hispanics and less educated Hispanics is now beginning or at least tending in the direction of the gap between you know, educated and less educated whites. Uh, by the way, there is no education gap among African Americans, contrary to some early reports. I yeah, I checked this quite recently, and the vote for the vote for Biden among college-educated African Americans was ninety-two percent, and for those without BAs, it was ninety-two percent. <laughs> so, but there's a there's a gap on issues. Uh, there's a gap on defunding the police, probably. Uh, but not in that, voting is what you're saying. That is that is probably true, but it hasn't translated into actual voting decisions yet. One more point, and you know, as Elaine has pointed out, you know, a Asian Americans are a relatively small fraction of the electorate, but they're rapidly growing, and conflicts, oh, especially over schooling on the East Coast and the West Coast, have illustrated the possibility of a serious division on the issue of what I'll call meritocracy between Asian Americans and African Americans. All right. Well, let's, uh, you know, the three of us uh, grew up at a time when the, uh, or grew up with a Democratic Party that was anchored in the working middle class, right? This is the old blue collar uh, coalition that started cracking up in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, your, your report makes very clear that you know, the, uh, uh, that we've lost, obviously we've lost the, the white working class. We're not doing as well as we think we are with the Hispanic working class. Uh, we even saw some depletion of black support last time, but that's a somewhat different story. But okay, uh, we are a party increasingly of affluent voters, of highly educated parties. How do we, how do we compose a, uh, an economic offer to voters across the diploma divide? You know, so uh, because some say, well, you got to amp up the economic populism. Uh, but my reading of Hispanic voters is they're quite aspirational. They want to know about how they su succeed and not be put in a victim category. How does this party make an offer to working class voters that that bridges these ethnic divides? Or is there a way to do that? Well, I think that, you know, I think what we saw in 2020 was that, first of all, you had some real economic problems um, coming from the pandemic. Um, things, I, I think it's fair to say that Donald Trump might, might may well have won this election had it not been for the COVID and then, then the yep. economic problems that followed from it. Um, and I think what Biden managed to do in 2020 was to 
connect just enough with the non-college white workers in key states to get enough of them to move, and we have the, all the the, num the actual numbers are in the report, but it's very clear that it was white non-college voters who moved from the Republican to the Democratic Party in 2020, giving Biden his big um, electoral college victory and, and his, his numerical victory. Um, if you look at Biden 2020, one of the things he did fairly skillfully, and, and the primaries ironically helped him there, is that, you know, we went through a period in the primaries with all these debates where every Democrat on the stage was, was you know, signing on to some pretty ridiculous things, like getting rid of ICE at the border, mm -hmm. getting rid of border control, okay? And it was Biden who said, no, I'm not for that. He repeatedly sort of said that. So he staked out through the primaries and into 2020 a very uh, sensible, prag pragmatic, <laughs> centrist position on the cultural issues. And I think that that opened people's ears to the economic issues, which have always been a democratic strong suit with those voters. Um, the danger that we see now is that Biden can't make that argument. He can't make the economic argument because the cultural issues are frankly in the way yeah. and in danger of, of keeping people from hearing the economic interest, the economic argument. Okay. But I don't want to presuppose that there's uh, that they're bowled over by the economic argument either. Right. That's uh, so right. let me, so the point is, let's say that the party moved in the direction that you all are calling for me too, uh, you know, toward cultural moderation on these issues that are so toxic to us with swing voters. So how, you know, what, what is the economic offer that would help us win back, keep, you know, Hispanic and black working class voters, win back white working class voters, uh, and yet appeal to the true base of the party, which is now much more upscale and highly educated? Elaine gave you a two-word answer to your first question. I'm going to give you a one-word answer to this question. What's getting in the way of the economic argument? The single word is inflation, just to speak the obvious. This is a problem for everybody. You know, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are sort of like us. They re maybe retired three years ago. And they're beginning to notice that if you have inflation at seven and a half percent and prices of the basics going through the roof, maybe what they put away won't be enough to get them to the finish line. Uh, at least it's not as sure a bet as it was just a couple of years ago. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you have people, you know, you have downscale voters for whom basics like food, fuel, and rent, you know, are close to 100% of their weekly and monthly expenditures, and they're being squeezed too. So the first step of the economic offer, and I think the president, at least verbally, has moved in this direction in recent months, is to give as much attention to inflation as the American people are, because people will kill you if they think you're not paying attention 
to what's central to their lives. That is the surest formula. And paying attention is step one. I'm you know, communicating, I'm with you. And then the basics of what you're doing and how's it working can fall into place. But uh, I can pretty much guarantee you that that if in if inflation is running at anything like current levels two and a half or three years from now, uh, we won't have to have elaborate discussions about what's going to happen uh, in November of 2024 because it will be, I fear, foreordained. Right. Well, I, I, I hear you and, and don't disagree with that. Obviously, it's the immediate problem uh, that we're facing and that the president's got to tell people he's got some answers for. But I am struck, you know, we have 75% of Americans in this latest Washington Post poll uh, say that the economy is not good or poor. I mean, there's a profound sense of despondency in the country. And it seems to me to transcend the immediate problem of inflation. I could be wrong about that, but they felt that way before the inflation spike. So I don't don't think I am. Uh, maybe it's all of COVID and, and the shutdowns and uh, a general sense of you know, the burden of, of that, the pandemic experience of the last two years. But people are in an ex- extraordinarily glum and pessimistic <laughs> mood about the economy. So so my question to put a sharper point on it is, are we trying to get people to feel better about the economy? Because there are some Democrats, and I'll, I'll call out our friend uh, Stan Greenberg, who thinks that, you know, we need to amp up the populism to reach working class voters and get them back on the Democrat side, which means sharper attacks on greedy corporations and uh, the 1%, et cetera. What's, what's from your point of view, what's a, what's the, how do we, how do we balance those uh, points or, or how, how do we come up with a, uh, an economics that the working class would respond to? You know, Will, before Biden got to the laundry list portion of the State of the Union, which unfortunately always taxes everybody's patience. Um, That's not all got, taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he got there. He gave a very coherent, you know, announcement about Ukraine and where it was. And then he gave a very coherent message about economics that said, make it in America. Mm-hmm. Now, that is, a, that is a phrase that's been around for a long time. A lot of members of Congress use that phrase. And suddenly, there was the president saying, we're going to make it in America. Now, I think that's the sort of thing that appeals to the white working class because they have been devastated in Ohio, in Michigan, in those places by uh, manufacturing just simply leaving. And I think that the make it in America phrase and whatever policies they can then hang on that phrase illustrates the difference between the center of the Democratic Party on economics and the left. The left wants to give people aid. They want to give them this tax credit, this, 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 you know, it, this amount of money to do this, etc. They want to give them money to help them out, which is which is fine to a certain extent. I think the center of the Democratic Party is more about, and we go back to the old many years ago, uh, more about giving them opportunity. Yeah. People want jobs. They would rather have a job with health care than they would to have Medicare for all. Okay, right. that's that's just simply what um, that's the way Americans think. And so I think that if 
if the Biden administration can can keep from being, you know, pulled to the left and, and you know, in their messaging and everything else, if they can stick to that, make it in America and then put some meat on the bones, some policy meat, um, that might be the beginning of a an economic message for Democrats. The left just thinks give people money. That's their economic message. That is not satisfying. Yeah, I, I really agree that aspiration beats redistribution mm-hmm. and yeah. that uh, <laughs> and that, that is particularly true of Hispanic voters, which is why I don't think amping up populism is, is, is really the way to, to reach these very entrepreneurial folks who want who have a foothold in the American dream and want to enlarge it. On the other hand, uh, Donald Trump is a big fan of "Make It in America," I'm not, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure where that leads uh, on a policy uh, in policy terms. And we could probably have a good, lively debate on that, but I'm told we don't have time for that. So let me let me switch to uh, to the to the political challenge in front of us now. So the president just gave his big so to speech. He did in you know he did address some of the Democrats' cultural vulnerabilities on defund the police, as, as Bill has pointed out. Uh, but very quickly, who are the key voters here? You know, is it the swing vote last time seemed to have been, you, you mentioned white working class voters, but it was also suburban voters. He did better with, you know, people who were alienated from Trump. Uh, who are the key voting groups that, you know, that we have to win, that we have to really persuade in order to have a chance to not be wiped out in, in, a, in a midterm tsunami? Well, let's just begin with our analysis of how Biden won in 2020. You know, he brought home a lot of independents, a lot of moderates, and a lot of suburbanites. And not by accident, he has, as we document in our report, suffered disproportionately large losses among those voters, which has dragged down his his job approval rate. Now, in, in To offer a complete picture, you also have to say that he combined uh, a much stronger uh, performance among those three groups, overlapping groups of swing voters than Hillary Clinton achieved in 2016 with a very powerful mobilization of everybody else. And it was that combination of a high mobilization among the people who are likely in normal circumstances to vote for Democrats, plus the very strong performance among swing voters that was just enough to put him over the top in Georgia, in Wisconsin, and in Arizona. And if you want a scary historical counterfactual, a shift of 43,000 votes in those three states would have produced a 269 to 269 tie in the electoral (laughs) college. And if you think we're having political problems, problems of legitimacy now, <laughs> just imagine what that would have produced. We, we'd all be wearing horns on our head and be at the Capitol. <laughs> if that, if that the case. Um, you know, what, let me say one thing about suburban voters, too, which the suburban women's vote trended very heavily Democratic in 2016 and 2020. And a lot of that was just that it, it, Donald Trump was so disgusting to women. He's a bully. He's like, every woman has known some guy like this and we hate them. Right. So, so there was a, there was just a reaction among a lot of women to yuck. We know yeah. who this guy is. And we don't like him. Imagine Don Youngkin, 
right? Imagine the Republican figurehead in 2024 not being Donald Trump. And I think then some of these suburban women uh, may in fact wander back to the Republican Party. Yeah, uh, it's, it sounds like though we, you know, we're, we need Trump on the ballot somehow in the midterm in order to get the turnout <laughs> among the key groups we need. That's not going to happen. Listen, we're just about out of time, but I do want to ask one final question of you because you you guys were there in the 90s. You saw the new Democratic movement arise. You saw the new faces and new ideas and energy that came into the Democratic Party, which frankly had a very tired old interest group oriented agenda at the time. What I'm struck about today is the dearth of such uh, new faces, you know, the, you know, on the pragmatic end of it. There are a lot of people vying to be the top progressive but uh, candidate. But where are the young modernizers, the young reformers, uh, you know, governors? You know, am I wrong in, in seeing that we have a dearth of them? And, and why, why aren't they materializing? It's a good question, Will. Um, it's a good question. Now, I do think we had some, for instance, Gina Raimondo, definitely a centrist and a modernizer. Um, she's now in the cabinet, but she's, she's relatively young, so I can see her being around um, for quite some time. Um, I think we do have some. I think a lot of the African-American leaders are, in, in contrast to, to years ago, in fact, are quite centrist and, and quite uh, smart about things. Plus, they have the sort of moral authority yeah, plus mayors, a lot of mayors. Yeah, a yeah. lot of the mayors, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think there is a talent pool out there, um, but it may not be what we're traditionally thinking of in the from the House or from, from the Senate. Mm -hmm. I would just add that uh, in 1990, a lot of people were asking the same question. And you may not need a huge talent pool if there is a huge talent in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where's, our, where's the Bill Clinton? Is we're, we're, we need someone on white horse, a white horse to ride up and we need them fast. Uh, well, look, um, thank you so much. I, I, we're out of time, unfortunately. I've really enjoyed this. This has been great. You opened up a bunch of, uh, of avenues for further discussion. But thank you so much for writing the paper. It's really a great service to the Democratic Party and to all of us who want to see us beat the midterm curse and keep Donald Trump and his crew uh, from coming back uh, in 2024. And, uh, and thanks for being with us today to elaborate on some of the wonderful analysis in this yeah. report, which I hope all of you out there will find on our website and read because it's it's worth every minute you spend with it thanks well, a lot guys and we'll, we'll be see you in we'll see you in 33 years will <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly oh my god oh my god <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening want to learn more about the progressive policy institute follow us on twitter at ppi and on facebook at progressive policy institute or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.